So as we begin reading in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. And this passage here is kind of the climax of the book of Exodus. If you remember, the book of Exodus kind of breaks down into two parts. First, you have God delivering His people as He went in and rescued them from slavery and bondage within Egypt and overcame Pharaoh and brought them out into the wilderness. And then from that point, when He gets them out into the wilderness, now you have God dwelling with His people as He provides for them and and takes care of them and lives among them in the wilderness. And this whole thing with the tabernacle is really to that end. It's about God dwelling with His people. Now, chapter 40, right at the end of the chapter, is move-in day. The chapters that we haven't read right here is about them putting that tabernacle together. Now, it's all done. It's all in place. And then God comes and He moves in. And that's what the cloud's about. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night is the presence of God living in His tent. And all Israel could see God's home. And when God moved, it was time to fold up the tent and fold up all our tents and follow Him until He stopped. And when He stopped, they set up His tent, set up their tents, made camp again. That was their experience as they were dwelling with God. But if you look at the five books of Moses, what we call the Pentateuch, the theme for the Pentateuch is found in Genesis chapter 12. And it's the promise given to Abraham. God told Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you descendants like the stars of the sky and the sands of the shore. And I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless the entire world, which is what He's doing today through Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham. So God gave Abraham this promise. Now, what we have in Genesis before chapter 12 is why there needed to be a promise. We see a lot of things about God and how He made the world good and then mankind rebelled and went into sin. And then we see some judgment taking place with the flood and with the Tower of Babel. And we and we see a process that just leads naturally to Abraham. And the fulfillment of that promise is what the whole rest of these five books is about. The writings of Moses will end with Israel ready to go into the promised land but hasn't crossed the river yet. And then we go into the book of Joshua. It's all about God fulfilling His promise, His covenant with Abraham, bringing him to the land that He promised him, the people that He promised him, and fulfilling His promises as He continues to reach out to them and with them to the world. Well, that brings us into the book of Leviticus because notice what happens at the last part of the book of Exodus. We have the presence of God. He's now moved in with His people. That's, that's huge. But then it's, it's interesting. It says that the cloud comes down and it covers the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And Moses can't go in. Moses has been up on the mountain with God 
and experience the glory of God to such an extent like we talked about last week where he just radiated the glory of God. Moses had been in the presence of God's glory much. In fact, there was a contrast. The children of Israel kept off the mountain. Moses gets to go up. The children of Israel are kept in the village while Moses goes far from the, far from the camp and in this other little tent that they called the tent of meeting and got to go into that and speak with God as it were face to face. Moses got to be in the glory of God for a lot of different things. Even at one point, Moses said, show me your glory. And God says, you know what, I can't show you all of it because it will kill you, but I'm going to hide you in this little cleft of a rock and then I'm going to let you watch me pass by. And so Moses is somebody that has experienced the glory of God, but all of a sudden, when God's glory comes down on that tabernacle, Moses is not allowed in. I'm not totally sure why that is, but I think I do see a reasonable explanation. If you look at the first verse of Leviticus... It says the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Notice Moses isn't in the tent of meeting. It says in the last part of Exodus that Moses couldn't go into the tent of meeting because of God's glory on the tent. Now God calls to Moses from the tent of meeting. So Moses is standing on the outside as God talks to him. But the encouraging thing is, is if you look to the next book of the Pentateuch, Let's start at the very beginning of the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 1, which this is not a long period of time, from the end of the book of Moses to the beginning of the book of Numbers is one month. Because God said moving, moving day is on the first day of the first month of the second year. And then in Numbers, it identifies this right now, this time, as the first day of the second month of the second year. So it's exactly one month that has gone by. But now it says in verse 1 of the book of Numbers, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt. So you see, something happened within the book of Leviticus, it appears, that as we come to the end of Exodus, Moses is not in the tent of meeting when we get to the end of Leviticus and start the book of Numbers, Moses is in the tent of meeting. And I think the reason is the content of the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is all about the priesthood and the sacrifices. Just like uh, Exodus spent a lot of time saying this is what the tabernacle is going to be like and this is what the priest's garments are going to be like, the book of Leviticus says this is what I want the sacrifices that you're going to offer are going to be like. This is for the Day of Atonement. And he just lists out all these different sacrifices. At this date, I want you to offer these sacrifices. And for this kind of sin, I want you to excuse me, offer these kind of sacrifices. And when you think about that, then that kind of that makes sense. Because if the tabernacle is done, but the sacrifices aren't being offered yet, then it's really not open for business, right? It's closed. But if by the end of the book of Leviticus, now we've got everything in place and the sacrifice has taken place, and now the temple's open. Now Moses can go in. Actually, more importantly, the high priest is going to be going in at that point and offering up those sacrifices. And so what that teaches us then is that the only access that we have to God happens through sacrifice. There's blood sacrifices. And that's exactly what we experience through Jesus Christ is we experience the sacrifice. 
None of us can come to God on our own. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Me. Why? Because He's our High Priest and He's our sacrifice. He offered up Himself. And so the only avenue to God as He's there in His tent, the only avenue to God is through sacrifice. The innocent dies for the guilty. And we see that over and over and over through Israel's history. The innocent dying for the guilty every time they offer a sacrifice. And that all points to Jesus Christ. Well, why? Why does it require sacrifice? And that comes down to one word. Holiness. Holiness. It's because God is holy. He's set apart. He's not just one of us. In fact, even though we were made in His image, we've also fallen. There's a dignity to human life because we retain the image of God. We also have marred that image. And so we've been separated. We're far from God. Except for the sacrifices. That's what brings us near. It's those, the price paid for sin. The blood that purchases our redemption. That makes us clean. That makes us holy. And that's exactly what the book of Leviticus is all about. The book of Leviticus is about the holiness of God and His program for making us holy. In fact, the word holy is used within the book of Leviticus 74 times. Why are we separated? Because God is holy and we're unholy. He's clean and we're unclean. Those are two other words that are used a lot in the book of Leviticus. But Leviticus outlines a way for us to be made clean as well. In fact, if we were to turn to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 2, we find kind of the theme statement of the book of Leviticus. It says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so that's what we want to consider here this morning as we look at this very pivotal time where God has moved into His tent at the end of the book of Exodus. And that brings... Leviticus really is just an ongoing of the book of Exodus. It just flows right into it. And so we see now that the tent is there and God is there, now sacrifices, put the priest to work. Let's get all this functioning and operating the way that it's supposed to. And it is done because of the holiness of God. So as we consider God's holiness this morning, we're going to look at four ways to respond to God's holiness. The first way that we respond to God's holiness is just to recognize His holiness. Call it to attention. Think about it. You know, it is good for us to recognize the holiness of God. It's supposed to be an impact in our life, which we'll talk about shortly. But you know, if we spend all of our time just kind of within our own experience... We end up thinking everything's like us. You know, I remember when we used to take uh, teenagers sometimes down to a day camp for inner city kids and we'd work as counselors and stuff down there and put on chapels and, and just spend time out there with fishing and, and swimming with them and stuff like that during free time and playing games with them and things too. You know, I remember our, our teenagers often expressing the fact that, wow, they just kind of figured... Most everybody in the world has a life kind of like theirs. And it was shocking to them how different some people's lives were that didn't have some of the advantages and some of the consistencies that they experience in their own lives. We just get used to the things the, the way we have life. We can do the same thing with God. We can start to think He's kind of like us instead of us trying striving to be like Him. 
In fact, there's one time in Israel's history when God would even tell him that. He says, look, I kept silent. And because I kept silent, you thought I was just like you. You thought I was in favor of everything you're in favor of and against everything you're against. And God, it was clearly not the case. And so God was breaking His silence. Well, that's what we need to do. We need to continue to reflect on God and who He is. And one of His primary attributes is holiness. He's holy. He's to be treated as holy. He's not common. He's not, he's not everyday. He's, he's distinct. He's different. He's, in fact, the word holiness implies a separateness. He is above all things. He is not looking at everything through the same sinful perceptions that we can have. God is holy and clean. It emphasizes this in Leviticus chapter 22 and verse 32. It says, Do not profane my holy name. I hate when I hear the Lord's name taken in vain. I know in some of our children's ministries, I've told our kids, I said, you know what? Because you'll hear it. They'll come in and oh my, you know, and use the Lord's name in vain. And I constantly put a stop to it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't use God's name or don't even use His titles unless you're talking to Him or about Him. Say something else. And I've surprised Him before because I've even told Him before, I said, look, I would rather hear you say the F word than use God's name in vain. The Bible does say about His own name, it says God will not hold Him guiltless who used, takes His name in vain. It doesn't say that about the F word. And the kids, when I say that, they're like, oh, what? Because they hear God's name taken in vain so flippantly, a lot of them probably don't even get in trouble for using it at home. But if they use that other word, they'd be in big trouble. And I try to point them out, you're in bigger trouble if you use this one. So stop it. And you see, that's exactly what God's doing. Why is that one of the Ten Commandments? Because we're dealing with God, a holy God. And His name is a holy name. He says, do not profane My holy name. What does it mean to profane? It means to take something very valuable and treat it as common. Right? You take something valuable and you trample it underfoot. And that's what God's name is. You know, has it ever really made you stop and wonder why using God's name in vain is so popular? Why it's so common within society? I mean, nobody does that with Muhammad. Nobody does it with Buddha. Nobody does it with Hare Krishna. Nobody, there isn't another religious leader that I can think of where they, that they will use in, take their name and use it in such a slanderous way. But Jesus Christ, or the title of God? Why is that the case? I can't help but think that uh, it's because that's what Satan's, Satan doesn't care if you use Muhammad's name in vain or, or Hare Krishna's or Buddha's or anybody else's. But if he can get you to use Jesus's, if he can get you to use God's, then he's done something. But God says, do not profane my holy name. I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who makes you holy. And then in chapter 10, verse 3, it says, Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when He said, among those who approach Me, I will show Myself holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. And then a few verses later, in verse 10, it says, you must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. 
Now, this is, there's a traumatic event that has happened right here. You see, in the book of Leviticus, God shows Himself as holy in both statements and actions. And what has happened is God has just taken an action to protect the holiness of His name and His character. And you know what that action was? Here's the deal. As the sacrifices and the priesthood is all getting set up, they uh, burn incense. Remember we talked about with the tabernacle, there was going to be the altar of incense that they burn and everything. And two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, went in to offer incense. And they went in to offer incense, and it says that they brought in a, a foreign, oh, I forget the word that it used right there, strange fire, I think it says in the King James, but I forget what it says in ESV. But basically, they brought in a, an incense to burn that was not what God told them to burn. Remember back in Exodus, how God had a specific formulas for His incense that He wanted burned? And there's a whole recipe on how to make it. And He says, this you don't use for yourself. You only use it for me. It was to be set apart. It was to be holy to the Lord. Well, Nabadab and Abihu went in and they offered, they burnt something else before God that wasn't His. It wasn't holy unto the Lord. That was, we'd say, common because everybody could use it. And so they treated that which was holy with something common. And you know what happened? God consumed them with fire. Fire came out from the altar and they died. Now, these are Aaron's sons. And then Moses comes to talk to Aaron. And he tells Aaron in chapter 10 there, he says, look, don't tear your clothes. Remember, tearing, tearing of clothes was a sign of great sorrow. If you had a family member die, something like that, you'd tear your clothes. It was kind of like, no, you know. And he'd tell Aaron, don't tear your clothes. Aaron had to stand strong to distinguish the holiness of God even in the face of his own son's death who treated God as common. He had to acknowledge, those are my sons, but God's holiness. They took something valuable and they made it cheap. And they paid the price for it. And it's within that that God says, as we already read in verse 3, Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke when He said, among those who approach Me, I will show Myself holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. God's holiness is not optional. It's rigid. It needs to be, demands to be recognized as holy. When we treat God or speak of God in a, in a common way, we're doing a great disservice and we're, and we're uh, committing a great misunderstanding of who God is. God says, my name won't just be thrown around. It's to be revered. It's to be recognized as holy. That's why I don't like, I don't like terms for God that God didn't give Himself. You know, one I like the most probably is Father. I love that one. As God identifies Himself that way, and it, it speaks of connection to us. And that's a great act of grace. But I hate it, and I won't say that I've never done it, but I hate it when I hear to Him referred to as like the big guy upstairs or something like that. You know, it's just, nah, it's just, it's, it just seems like you're bringing Him down. And, and you know what? He came down on His own in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, the kind of ironic thing is when you think about this whole system, that's exactly what He was doing. God was already coming down to them with this whole system, putting it together, this whole system of where He can make them holy through this system to bring them to Himself. But they went too far and made Him common in the process. 
and paid the price. So we need to recognize His holiness. Secondly, we need to receive His holiness. You know what? This whole process is all put together by God. God is the one who decided who the priests were going to be and how they were going to function. God was the one, if you remember in Exodus, gave them very specific instructions on how, how they were going to build His His tabernacle, His tent. And so all of this is put in place by God. He gifted people with the ability to make these things. And so it, the whole thing is put together by God. God is providing it all. The people, God is totally providing this way for them to receive the forgiveness of their sins as they bring in the sacrifices and the sacrifice is offered and the innocent dies for the guilty and they come out of there clean. They just have to receive what God is doing for them, giving for them in this whole process. You know what? That's exactly the way it is with Christ. We don't earn our way up before God. We don't achieve our salvation or our holiness before God. But God makes us righteous through what He did with Jesus Christ. Through that cross. Righteousness isn't something that we have on our own. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when writing about the Jewish people of his day, he said, you know what? They go astray because they're, they're trying to make their own righteousness instead of submitting, in the book of Romans, to the righteousness of God, which is in Christ. You see, Christ accomplished that righteousness for us. That's exactly what God was doing here. God was accomplishing, by putting together this priesthood and the sacrificial system, God was accomplishing holiness on their behalf. He said, I'm holy and I'm going to come down and I'm going to make you holy as well. In Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 8, he says, Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Notice, he says, I'm the Lord who makes you holy. In 21.8, he says, Regard them as holy because they offer up the food of your God. Consider them holy because I, the Lord, am holy. I who make you holy. Well, in the book of Hebrews, as it looks back on this system and compares it to that of Jesus Christ, the author says this, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. He's been making lots of points with with comparing Christ to the old system. The blood of bulls and goats to the blood of the Son of God. The old priesthood, who those old priests died and had to be replaced year after year. Same one priest. The sacrifices over and over and over. Because, you know, they only were good for a temporary amount of time or to cover one sin that compared to Christ's sacrifice once for all, took care of all. So he's making all these, and he says, now look at it. If the blood of bulls and goats made them clean, how clean should it make you? Who's had to, what those things pictured, how clean should it make you that the Son of God, that His blood has been shed at your expense for the purpose of making you holy? And then I love it because he goes on to talk about the conscience. He says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? 
You see, you'd look back and say about the people back in Moses' time, they never really could have a fully clear conscience because you did something wrong, you had to offer another sacrifice. You did something wrong, you had to offer another sacrifice. And sacrifices were just offered over and over and over, which shows you they're temporal. They didn't last. He says, but with Jesus Christ, one sacrifice done forever. So now what should that, what impact should that make on your conscience? And I love that. When I got a grip on what this passage was saying one time, it made a huge impact in my life. Because I realized that, you know what? God wants me to have a clean conscience. And I can have it. In fact, if I believe in Jesus Christ and I don't have a clean conscience, it's because I don't understand how completely He paid for my sin. You see, God didn't say, I'm going to pay for most of your sin, but you've got to toe the line here to, to get the last little bit. No. When Jesus died on that cross, He said, it is finished. It was done. He didn't leave a part of it for me to clean up. Now granted, I am supposed to live my life. I'm supposed to follow Him. But I'm going to blow it from time to time as I do that too. And you know what? Those are taken care of. My conscience can be clean because how am I before God? Just as the song that we sang earlier, Are You Washed in the Blood? How am I before God? I'm washed in the blood. That soul cleansing, I have it. There isn't one part of it that's left for me to do. It's been accomplished for me in Jesus Christ. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10, it says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been made holy, clean, set apart. And then a few verses later, because by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. All of it God's work. What do we do? We just receive it. But when we receive it, what have we received? We've received perfection. We've received holiness. And all we do is receive it by faith. Well, also, we need to resemble His holiness. Because God is holy, and He makes us holy in our position before Him, that should be seen in our life. It should be fleshed out within our life. Right? The things that I do in my life, I'm not going to do them to try to make myself holy. I'm already holy. But if I am already holy, then what should my life look like? Holiness. And that's what we see in many different places throughout Leviticus, and and they're quoted in other places of the Bible too. For example, the statement, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy, is found in chapter 11, verse 44. But it's also found in chapter 11, verse 45, and chapter 19, and verse 2, and 20, verse 7, 20, verse 26, and 21, verse 8. And then also, when we look at like First Peter, when we get into the New Testament, chapter 1 and verse 15, it says, But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Because we recognize that we have a holy God and we receive that holiness from Him as He makes us holy, then we should resemble His holiness as we live out our lives. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, it makes the same statement, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You see, we don't live a holy life in order to become a child of God. We live a holy life because we are a child of God. Because our Father is holy and we ought to resemble Him. I look like my dad. My son Tim especially looks like me. Ryder looks like him. (laughs) You can see the resemblance in our family. Well, it's the same with our Heavenly Father. In fact, there was a time when Jesus was arguing with the religious leader and they claimed Abraham as their father. Jesus says, Abraham's not your father. 
Well, he was physically. But Jesus says, you know what? If, you're, if Abraham was your father, you would, you would do the things Abraham did. And Abraham would rejoice to see my day. Well, the last way is that we rejoice in his holiness. There's something else that's within the book of Leviticus as well. And you know what they are? They're holidays. They're holidays. They're feast days. And they know how to do it up. God put it to them. They weren't all just one day. Some of them are a week or two long, these celebrations. And so they're kind of like, they're like our holidays. Why do we have Christmas? We have Christmas because we're rejoicing in the birth of Jesus Christ, that God would send His Son into this world to be our Savior. Why do we have Easter? Because we're rejoicing in the fact that God has raised His Son Jesus Christ from the dead after He died on that cross for our sins. And even Good Friday, as we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ would go to that cross for us to pay for our sins. All these things are times of rejoicing. We rejoice over what God has done for us in purchasing our salvation and making us Holy. Well, that's exactly what they did back then too. It wasn't Christmas and Easter and those kinds of things, but it was tabernacles and the Day of Atonement. And they had these times on their calendar where they would celebrate, where they would rejoice in the things that God was doing for them in making them holy. Our God is a holy God. How do we respond to God's holiness? Well, we recognize His holiness. We receive His holiness. As we go on and live out our lives, we resemble His holiness and we also rejoice in His holiness.